picking up the last of the emblems, would you turn with me to 1 John 5? 1 John 5, and then let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we come to your word now. We honor it as your word, your revelation to us. Because it's your revelation to us, we come under it. We want to know the truths that are in it. We want to hear what is required of us, and we want to walk in the beautiful victory that this passage describes. As we kind of mine the riches of this text, would you just keep our hearts open to the work of your Spirit as he teaches us, corrects us, and encourages us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Jeremy. If I haven't met you before, it's lovely to have you here today. And we're doing a series in First John, and we are up to chapter 5. So uh, turn there with me. While you're looking at that, we're, it's called Walking in Victory. And uh, you'll see uh, why I'm using that, that, that uh, word in there. It's a centerpiece of this, of this text. But there's a lot in this passage. So let's walk our way, our way through it. We'll be a little bit later in our service today. So... Um, I was going to apologize for that. We don't need, we, we want to we get in out of this what we need to get. But while we're thinking about that, what I want, to, what, what I want you to do is um, the analogy that, that John uses very frequently is this idea of a family, that of God as a father and we as his children. And he talks about being born again, a new birth. And when they, they look at um, parental types, this is one of the common ways that they break it up. And it's sort of interesting when you look at this, you're sort of reflecting on maybe your own childhood or your own parenting style, but this is the one, that, one of the ways that they break it up, right? And so uh, they would go, you could put people a little bit into these categories. There's the authoritarian parent. The focus is on obedience. They use the term kind of this punishment over discipline, right? You step out of line, you're dragged back in. There's very clear ones with it, but maybe not a lot of warmth with it. There's a permissive one down there. There's a not enforcing of rules. Well, kids are kids, you know, they'll find their own way, their own path. You know, I'm just a spectator sort of sitting on the side. There's an uninvolved one that provides little guidance, nurturing, or attention. Um, maybe there's devices that distract or other things that kind of go on, and there's this vague noise in the background. And then there's one they call authoritative, which is uh, more around creating this positive relationships and enforcing rules. I was reading one of the um, websites that, that talks about this, and it was hilarious. They were kind of going, we don't really want to tell parents what sort of one they should be, but if you were going to choose one, probably authoritative one would be good, right? There's another way they, they kind of put of it, is putting it in a graph kind of form where one axis is this idea, I would change a little bit how they describe it, but the one going down the middle there is, is emotional connectedness or a warmth idea where there's a, a lot in, at the top and minimal down the bottom. And then the one across is this idea of um, what sort of uh, morals are in, in kind of places. There are a number that are sort of stated with it and low in another. And so you can see why they divide it up in this way. Now, it's always interesting when you do things like that because you, 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 they like to put people into categories. But the reality is that we, those who are parents here, if you're really honest, 
you're a bit of a mixture of them, aren't you? Right? You know, that's the kind of nature of it. We'd like to think we're authoritative in some sort of sense or, or we grow up kind of in it. But my thought is, is actually, what is it like for the child to grow up in these environments? Because I think this is what John's letter is, is getting at. He wants to tell us about God as a parent because he wants to know what it is like for you to be a child of God. What does that create in you? And part of the reason I put this up is because we know that a, a, a healthy environment from a parent and creating it um, enables a child to feel loved, right? And there can be issues with it because we can go, well, aren't they loved in the permissive kind of one? Because there's lots of warmth, but there's no direction with it. Well, actually, they can feel quite lost in that space. And so what happens is, and we're never, no one's completely a permissive parent. They're permissive for a wee while until the kid frustrates them, and then they often blow up kind of thing, and the kid goes, what? I didn't realize there were any rules. You've just made one, right? You know what happens? And the authoritarian one down there is so busy creating all these rules and dragging them kind of back in, and then one day you go, oh, I better be a bit warmer. And the kid's like, what? What is this? <laughs> What have I done now? You know? So, so we, we create these kind of environments. I was at Grandparents Day yesterday at Finlay Park. Fantastic. The, a day where they, they just put on for free um, for ones in the community, grandparents particularly, who maybe are looking after children or, or could be fostered ones that they're sort of doing. And it's a pretty tough road for these ones. They're at a stage in their life where they really... Uh, would rather not be looking after kids, but for varying reasons they are. And there was a mum there, uh, old grandma there that I got to chat to, and uh, she had grown up in an environment through foster care her whole life, lived in all sorts of different places, all sorts of different homes. And she said, I just never had stability or love in my life. And now she sees it in her grandchildren and that's what she wants to provide for them because she knows what it is like when it is absent. Okay? Now, I just want you to have these framing thoughts as we read this passage because I want to explain to you a little bit why I think John writes this letter in this particular way. He is trying to say to people who are children of God, there's a settledness that you can know, a stability that you can have in your life where there's clear direction, where there's warmth, where there's love, and in that environment where you know with certainty the love of the Father through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you will thrive. This is the victory that he's talking about. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I get excited about this, right? But in, in writing that and saying there's the settledness that you can know and there's signs you can look for in it, the reality is that he... He will unsettle those who don't have that. And that should leave a bit of an unsettledness with hopefully a desire to bring it in place. So let's read our first part of our text and then consider this. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. If you mark your Bibles, underline Jesus is the Christ. The is that is very important. We often see Jesus Christ 
but it's saying in a definitive way, Jesus is the Christ. And I'll explain that a bit more in a minute. Has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves those born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome because everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who then overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now we see here through, um, through this letter that there's three main signs that, um, that John is giving us to give us this certainty and this knowledge. And the certainty comes from belief, right? I mean, that's the first one in many ways, the sign, right, that, that covers over everything with it. And it's interesting in verse 1 there, um, it says there, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And the, the tenses are important there. It's saying this. If you're sitting here and you go, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I'll explain a little bit more how we understand that from the story. But if you're sitting here and you're going, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. We generally think of that faith that you have as being a condition to receiving what God has promised us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But John is saying, if you have that belief, it's a sign of something that's already happened. Do you understand this? If you have that belief, then you have had a spiritual rebirth into the family of God. It's a key sign that with it, centered in the person of Jesus the Christ. So there's a past event that means you have been born of God. And so there's three areas there that we have. The first one is the truth or a knowledge. And John keeps returning to this. There's obviously a pressure in this community. There's a group of people, he says, that are false teachers that have left, have, have, just, have, have had a distorted view of who Jesus is. And he is trying to correct this. And he's saying, no, you stayed and you believed in this one. This is correct. And you are right in believing it. So the first one is that I have to know and trust what this is. Now, let's think about what the story is in regards to this idea called the Christ. See, the story, grand story of Scripture starts back in Genesis with a good world that's created and, and male and female created in the image of God and a beautiful picture of, of harmony and relationship that sits there with it. With one rule, don't get that knowledge, eat from the tree of the knowledge. Of God. And even we, we ate from it, right? It's the fall, it's rebellion. It, for me, it is the most key framing understanding of why I see all the destructiveness that sits in our world today, including the destructiveness that sits in my own heart. But in there, in Genesis 3.15, there's a little promise. The snake who would come along to twist and lie and distort and manipulate, it says... There's one who's going to come, and the snake will bite at this one's heel, but what will that one do in the future? It'll crush its head. And so we have this little promise. There's one that's going to come. Who is this one? In Genesis 12, God goes to this 
man, Abraham says, I'm going to take you to this promised land away from the people group that you are part of. I'm going to put you in this promised land and I'm going to bless you. But one day through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. There's one going to come through the line of Abraham. Who is this? Who is this? We see the story of Exodus, and he raises up Moses, and Moses was the leader of the Israelite people. And they go and, and they uh, go through the wilderness and end up in the promised land. But in Deuteronomy 18, near the end of Moses' life, there's a little verse there, and it says this, that after Moses, another prophet will be raised up like him. You must listen to him. Who is this one that's going to come? We see there, then the, the, they get kings, and the first king is a, a, is a large failure. But then there's this King David, who's after a man after God's own heart, and he wants to build a house, a temple, a permanent temple. Who, uh, God comes to him in 2 Samuel 7 and says, that temple, that permanent temple, is not going to be built by you. It's going to be built by your son. But one day in your line will come a king who will build a kingdom and a temple that will last forever. Who is this one? In Isaiah 53, it, it, it still refers to this one, but it changes and a greater our understanding with, and there's the suffering servant, and it says in Isaiah 53, this one surely will take up our pain and bear our suffering, yet we will consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, He'll be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace will be on him, and by his wounds we will be healed. Who is this one? He still hasn't come. And the Bible repeatedly says there's one who's going to come. And the Old Testament eventually refers to this one as the Messiah, the anointed one. And in Greek, is called the Christ, the anointed one. And then you enter into the life of Jesus Christ. And what's the question they start to ask? John the Baptist goes to prison. And he gets his followers to go to Jesus. And what do they ask Jesus? Are you the one? Or should we expect another? And Jesus says, what do you see going on here? <laughs> What do you see going on? Jesus asked Peter, who do the people say that I am? And they come up with all these things. And he goes, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the what? The one, the Christ. The one that is here to do all these promises. You are that one. And Jesus says, it's a, it's a revelation from heaven that gives you that. In Jesus' trial, the high priest stands before him and goes, Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And Jesus there says yes. And he tears his robes and says blasphemy because he knows what Jesus is claiming. And they kill him. They kill him. So when he says in here, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ can you see what he's saying? That all the promises of this one who would come and rescue and save is in the person of Jesus Christ, the Christ, 
is probably the best way for us to think about it in the day. It's not his surname, it's his title that tells us that he fulfilled it all. The attack on Christianity always has at its heart one against Jesus Christ. There's a book, a popular book in certain circles recently that tries to describe that Christ was not just something that Jesus had. It's more a universal kind of than that, and we can be a little bit of as well. And, and the, the, the book that this description was writing was, was dedicated to his dog, who was Christ for him. Right? Now, it might have been a very nice dog, <laughs> But it can't be the Christ. There was one, the Christ, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And there's an attack on Jesus always from outside the church. But we have to be aware of it because there's attacks that can come within the church itself. I love Alistair Begg. He put it this way. He said, Christian faith has a distinctive, irreducible content. There's a core in the story that you can't reduce any further. Um, Christopher Hitchens is one of the most famous atheists. And uh, he's passed away now, but he was interviewed by a, a, a magazine, the Port Portland Monthly, it is called. And uh, they were talking to him about his opposition to religion and more specifically Christianity. And the minister who was questioning him noted that, that the Christianity he opposed in one of his best-selling books was of the fundamentalist variety. While she identi identified herself as a liberal Christian, after explaining that she didn't take the stories in Scripture literally and rejected the atonement, she asked H Hitchens if he saw a difference between fundamentalist faith and more liberal, progressive religion. Listen to what Christopher Hitchens says. He's not a believer, but he says this. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. How can an atheist understand that there is an, an, a distinctive, irreducible content about Christianity centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. For the sake of time, I, I won't share the story of Alyssa Childers, but um, if you're interested in her story, it's a very interesting one about he was, she, she was drawn into this, this um, underground of trying to, you know, move away from the scriptures and move away from the atonement within a church situation and how she's come out of it and, and warning people about the dangers that sit in that space. So we have the first one here is a sign of this is I have to, there's a truth that I have to know. There's a truth that I have to know about Jesus the Christ. The second sign that he does is this, there's a social aspect to it. The there's a love that comes out of this. A sign that, I'm a, that I'm, a, I'm a child of God. And in John, he specifically directs it towards the other children of the Father. 
Now, he's not saying we don't love everybody, right? That's what Jesus taught. Who's my neighbor? And he, he, he taught all sorts of things. But he says there's a specific kind of love that has to be centered in those who share the same parent, who share the same new birth through what Jesus Christ has done. And Jesus and the scriptures are very passionate about this. We can't be divided in this place. I was reading an article this week that was just talking about this idea of divisiveness that sits or disunity within. And it was surprising the number of verses that sit there that talk against this. There's one in Proverbs that sort of stand out. Six things that the Lord hates, seven things that he detests. And the idea is that seventh one is being kind of highlighted. Do you know what the seventh one is? He detests those who stir up conflict within the family of God. So what he calls me to is a love. It doesn't mean we agree on some, on some sort of areas out to kind of the side, but there's a core thing that when we share being in the same family, I have to have a love that sits there in it. Now, as we move into the third one, I want you to notice there in verse 2, he reverses the way that he's been talking about it all through. And how he's been talking about it is, how do you know you love God? Well, when you love other people who you can see, you know that you love the God that you can't see. Now, here he says something different. How do we really know that I'm loving the children of God? He's asking, see how he's asking the question the other way around? And the answer is fascinating. I know that I'm loving the fellow members of this family when I love the one from whom they come from. And what? Keep his commandments. Now, this is the third strand here. And this is a strand that is very much under attack, <laughs> right? Because there's this idea in our world that love just affirms. There's no real moral or good or evil. Now, we kind of reject that over sort of there, but, but there's things in here that, the, well, the, you know, the Bible's just, well, you know, it has a few sort of things there, but there's these other ones here and these slam verses there, but we don't really, you know, kind of stick to them anymore. But the Bible has a clarity, I think, in its core about what it's asking of us. And when, when we sit on the edges and try and go, well, what, what can I get away with? Or what can I get out of? I'm missing the point of what I'm being called to in it. What is God actually calling to me in my behavior? And if this is the fascinating thing that I think that calls us to this. In our Thursday night group, as we're working through this, one of the questions that has sat there is, how is the love of God displayed different from a love of the world? And I think here is a real clear distinction. He's saying that a love that I will have for somebody else is, is includes, centered around, might be too strong, but you know what I'm talking about, is centered in this idea that God is a moral God. That he has a way that he wants us to live. That he has a way that he calls us to. And when I just think that God is a God of love, but not a God who wants me to live in a particular way under his commandments, I fall into all sorts of problems. 
right, let's keep moving. So here's he, he carries on. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. What he means by that is this. We, the, 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 um, the lightest weight that a, that a soul can bear is an easy conscience. God has wired into us that we should live, I think, in a particular way. And when we come under that and we follow him, there's a lightness to us. When we live in the way of truth, not in the way of lying. When we live in the way of generosity and not in the way of greed. There's a, there's a lightness that comes to us. He says there's still a yoke there. There's still something with it. But there's a, it's not a burdensome one when we take on the commandments that God calls us to. And then he says, because everyone born of God overcomes the world. Now he's defined the world in chapter 2. In chapter 2 he says this, the world operates this way, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And he says those things are all going to pass away, right? And so when he comes to here and he's describing this world, how do I overcome it? How do I have a victory over these things? This lust, this pride, this selfish ambition, this envy, this desire for greed to have, to take. How do I overcome that? It's overcome. The victory comes through my belief in Jesus Christ and Him allowing me to change and shape the desires of my heart. That's where the victory comes. Our faith and trust in what Jesus Christ is doing in that. I believe the story of God. I believe what he is doing in all of these places. And I become an overcomer. It's interesting in, when Jesus and John, he, um, he's saying, in this world you're going to have trouble. And then he says what? Finish this verse for me. But take, let's try it again. In this world you're going to have trouble. But take, because, right. God, Jesus never promises a trouble-free life. We're going to pray for these persecuted Christians. Please don't pray feeling sorry for them, right? They would say that through that trouble, they often say, don't, don't necessarily take that trouble out from us. Give us heart and courage that, Jesus Christ has overcome this broken world that we live in. We in the West, we often pray, Lord, could you just clear the path for me? You know, the, God, we want God to be a helicopter parent, right? Clear that path for me. Give, free me from all those troubles. He's going, I don't want to free you from the troubles. I want you to take courage, to take heart. I have overcome the world. You can be an overcomer of all this toxic stuff that sits in the world. When you center your faith in me. In me. We'll um, pick up some of that stuff next week about the testimony with it. I want to close with this verse. Because he talks about here this testimony. He's going to attest to it, this, this issue that they had in this church here where they could accept Jesus Christ at his baptism. Hey, that's really cool. The Spirit is sort of on him, and they love that sort of stuff that sort of sits spiritually with it. 
but they couldn't understand the blood element, the crucifixion side of it. That Jesus was a man who went to the cross and died in my place for my sin. The rescuer. The one who rescues the whole world on a cosmic level. Christus victor, the victory of Jesus Christ on that cross. But it's personal as well. It's me. It's my sin and my participation in it. And he wants to do it because God is the most wonderful parent you could ever have. When you settle and rest in his forgiveness and his love, his desire to show you how you should live your life, following in obedience to him, is the greatest settledness and joy that you can know deep in your soul. You may have come from a lovely family like that. If you did, that's fantastic. But God's, God's, what God is saying is much greater than that. If you never came from that, well, it's even greater news for you, <laughs> right? Because you, in many ways, can understand the depth and the need of that at a deeper level. But this is the irreducible message of Christianity. And John is giving it to us on behalf of our loving Heavenly Father through the gift of His Son that you and I may not just have life but know that we have life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible story. Lord, it's, it's easy in uh, the daily details of our life to forget that there is just a grand, beautiful story of you rescuing and restoring us. Father, may we get lost in that grand story again. May we know that our belief and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior on that cross in my place for my sin was fulfilling all those promises that you gave right through this story. And because you are a promise-fulfilling God, I can rest in those today. So I pray over those people here today who believe in Jesus as the Christ and all that he has done. I pray for a settledness and rest and just a delight in the love of God that has given them a victory that they can walk in. If there's anybody here, Lord, who listening to this, there's an unsettledness in their heart, Lord, I pray that they would be stirred by that. Lord, would you speak to them right now and understand that they can have this too? That by saying, Lord Jesus Christ, I understand what you have done for me, that I too can walk in this victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.